The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. of people in their 40s and 50s have both an aging parent and a child under the age of 21. Caring for people in multiple generations demands time, love, attention, and more. Welcome to Caught Between Generations with your host, Dr. Merrill Griff. Our program will bring you the information you need as a family caregiver for everyone for whom you care with guest experts and resources to help you keep sane and organized. Now, here is Dr. Merrill Griff. Welcome to Caught Between Generations. I am Dr. Merrill, and I'm here with my wonderful co-host, Deanna. Hi. Glad to be here. I'm glad you're here, too. So we're going to talk today about depression. And depression is a word that, for me, gets bandied about often without much thought. So, for example, someone is feeling sad one day, and they'll say, they describe it as being depressed. Oh, I'm so depressed. All right. Oh, I have depression. Or a senior tells their physician that they've been feeling sad lately because they lost a, they lost a close friend. And suddenly they're being prescribed heavy doses of antidepressants. Or a parent of a teenage boy confides in his friend that suddenly his son seems withdrawn and depressed and he's sleeping a lot. And his friend tells him, ah, that's teenagers. He's fine. Don't worry about it. You know, just give him a little kick in the you-know-what and push him out of the house and he'll be fine. So whether it's children or it's adults, there's a lot of misinformation and a, and there's a lot of lack of understanding about what depression really is. So today's guests are going to help us understand the real nature of depression, signs that should concern us, interventions, and ways to deal with depression that helps us as caregivers of people who, ha- who really have depression. So our first guest is Dr. Deborah Sarani, and Dr. Sarani is the share care expert for Dr. Oz. She writes for Psychology Today. She helms the Ask the Therapist for Esperanza magazine, and she's worked as a technical advisor for the television show Law and Order Special Victims Unit, and that is the thing of which I will tell you I am most jealous, all right, because <laughs> I love that show, right? See, the only, the best, the next best thing you could do, Dr. Sarani, is work for Criminal Minds, and I I would be at your feet just begging for <laughs> opportunity. Right. So other you, than criminal minds. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us what really is late life depression. Well, I just want to say thank you so much for inviting me, Dr. Griff, to, to talk about this. Uh, you know, I had written a few books on depression and my publisher asked me to write one about late life depression. 
and I thought I knew everything I needed to know about depression in later life, and boy, was I about to get schooled. Um, there's about 2 million, two million late-life adults who are struggling right now with a depressive disorder, and 95% of them don't know that that's what they're struggling with. And given that the uh, silver wave is at its highest point right now, we're going to have more in the geriatric population living longer and more meaningful years. It's an important topic for us to talk about because depression in later life looks very different than depression in early life. To say it very simply, depression in late life is really revolves more around um, vascular issues, cognitive issues. Um, it's it's not the kind of I feel so sad or I'm in despair kind of thing that younger people will report. Older people report more physical complaints, fatigue, irritability. So it's kind of difficult to see a loved one, an older person, as depressed when they sound cranky, irritable, and tired. But that's the piece here that the presentation of depression is quite different for this age group. So, Dr. Sharani, let's talk about um, some myths around depression in your book, which is outstanding. I I highly recommend it. Um, It is called Depression in Later Life, an Essential Guide. Um, In in a section, you talk about myths around depression. So one of those myths I'd like you to address is that depression is just a normal part of aging. You know, you get older, you get depressed. What the heck? Right. Right. And, you know, men many people, including health professionals, really buy into this myth that getting older means that you're going to get depressed because that's the way the life cycle goes. But the truth is that depression at any age is not considered a healthy, normal experience. So while many individuals who reach their 60s and 70s may find themselves feeling depressed, a good percentage of them don't realize that this is a treatable illness. So when we have doctors or family members saying, oh, well, you know, Uncle Joe or Grandpa Bill is, you know, he's older and that, that's okay that he's sad or he's feeling lonely. Actually, we really need to shatter this myth because depression is not part of any any part of the aging process. So, um, you know, for me, that's the biggest myth that's out there. And it's not just for the lay person or the general public. Many health professionals, we got to school them and say, no, no, no. You know, late life and golden years are not supposed to be filled with sadness and despair. I think that's excellently said, and I and I think you're really right. We have we have a tagline at Saracura that says, you know, for us senior senior life is to be enjoyed, not endured. Oh, um, that's beautiful. Be, be, because I think that's what what people think. And another myth that you talk about is that oh, it'll just go away on its own. You know, you, you don't have to treat the depression; it'll just go away on its own. That's, that's the truth for many mental illnesses. There, there's this belief that if I, you know, ignore it or I will it away or maybe if I just kind of let things be, it'll float away and I don't have to worry about things. But the truth is, is that untreated illnesses, whether it's 
fibromyalgia, diabetes, or depression only worsen over time. So this is why early detection is so important. And given that the symptoms for late-life depression are a little bit more sneaky to discover, the earlier we can identify an elderly person who's struggling with depression, we can get interventions to make them be feeling better within a relatively quick turnaround. About 90% of the elderly feel better with certain medications, and there are short-term therapies that help people of a certain age deal better with the uh, developmental needs of of being in your 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. Um, So the the trick here is to never say, let's just ignore this or, you know, this really isn't a, a big deal. Um, the, the idea here is early detection means greater chance of well-being. So, Deborah, I'm in my 40s, and sometimes me and my friends, if we're having a bad day or two, we just kind of say, oh, I, I feel like I'm just stuck in a rut. You know, you've had a week, it's been kind of not the greatest week, and, and, and those are just the words we say. I feel like I'm in a funk, I'm in a rut, and so how is it different if I'm, I'm now older and I'm feeling that way. How do I know the difference? Am I stuck in a rut or am I, am I dealing with something like depression? Deanna, that's such a great question because I think we, we kind of use words very casually like, oh, man, I'm so depressed today. I can't believe I had such a tough day at work. But to some degree, we are talking about an emotional experience that is different than a feeling of well-being. You may feel sad. You may be in a rut. You may be feeling blue or even in despair because something terrible happened that day or last week or something that you're worried about happening in, in, in the future to come. The difference when we talk about illness and disorder is one word, time. If you're feeling bad a couple of days in a row and then you feel better again or a few weeks later you're finding yourself not feeling so good but you bounce back, That's the human experience. We're supposed to have moments of sadness, joy, boredom, and everything in between. But when you have a disorder, you have a chronic timeline of symptoms being present and really not going away. Generally speaking, we, we, whoever we are, meaning the diagnosticians, we talk about two weeks or more of having a set of symptoms that appear to be chronic in duration. So if you're having a rut, Diana, and you know, you're with your friends and you're kind of all grumbling, <laughs> that's mm-hmm. all well and good. But if every day you talk to your buddy or you talk or you see yourself and you say, you know what, it's it's like almost a month now. I, I, I think something's up. It's the duration. The word again would be time. How long okay. you're dealing with it is the key here. Thank you. So, you know, we always talk on Call Between Generations about how important it is as a caregiver for someone else, regardless of what their situation is, um, to take care of yourself. So what are your recommendations for um, what you describe as self-care so that you don't become depressed as well when you're taking care of someone with depression? 
well, you you cover this subject all the time as as you know being between generations. So many of us older adults are taking care of not just our own children, but of also our own parents. So it's essential that we as caregivers make sure that we're at our best because just like when the air masks fall from the airplane, you're not going to put it on the person next to you. You've got to put it on yourself first so you can tend to all the things that you need to in an emergency. And self-care is, is really a tough thing in, in America. Sometimes it gets a bad rap. Sometimes people think it's like being self-indulgent. But self-care is about making sure that you know how to delegate when you need to, learning how to say no if it's too much. How do you know what your limit is? How do you know when you're feeling too stressed and overtaxed? And what do you do to refuel so you can come back to the demands of your life, taking care of your older parents and your younger children, so that there's a feeling of wellness all around? Um, So it's a very important thing to put self-care at the top of the list. And many of the people that I work with have great trouble doing that. There's feelings of guilt or I'm not trying hard enough or I can't ask this one to do it. So once you can start asking yourself, am I being selfish or am I being considerate of myself? That's when you can start looking at self-care as being a healthy movement for your own well-being. And everybody benefits when the person driving the car is at their best. So it, it is a very important thing for caregivers. And I love shows like this because I think it gives tools and tasks and insights to a lot of caregivers that sometimes just need somebody to say, you know, it's okay if you, you know, can't get to this today. And it's okay if you don't want to do this. And it's okay if you're feeling depressed yourself. It just gives others opportunity to understand they're not alone. You're listening to Caught Between Generations, and actually, I feel better already, Dr. Sharani, so thank you now that you've told me it's okay. It's true. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to be discussing a difficult topic to talk about, but it's important, and that is the rising incidence of suicide in seniors. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. At Sarah Care, we provide daytime activities and health related care for seniors who need assistance and support during the day. It is 101 activities at home by dinner. While we pride ourselves on the quality of our care, the Sarah Care Way sees beyond your loved one's needs to understand them as a unique individual. We care for individuals with chronic diseases, memory loss, stroke, Parkinson's disease, or those who may be feeling depressed and isolated. Our program is designed to encourage seniors to remain involved in activities of their choice, customized to meet their interests and abilities. Our outings include lunch at favorite restaurants and trips to the movies, concerts, or shopping at a cost that is less than five hours of in-home care. Your family member can attend one of our centers all day and be cared for by professional nurses and activity assistants. Transportation and financial assistance is available. Call 1-800-472-5544 today to learn how Sarah Care can help or visit us on the web at sarahcare.com. That's S-A-R-A-H-Care.com. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. 
listening to Caught Between Generations. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to drmerrill at caughtbetweengenerations.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to Caught Between Generations. We're here, Dr. Merrill and Deanna Albrecht, with Dr. Deborah Sroni, who is the author of Depression in Later Life, An Essential Guide. And before the break, we were talking about the importance of self-care. Yeah, we were. And, you know, some, I'm a caregiver myself of a child with special needs. And so sometimes I think, when I think of self-care, I think, oh, I have to plan out all these things for myself. I have to go get a pedicure, because I do, really, I do. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody else knows <laughs> Let me see your feet. No, no, no. I have sandals on today, so it's really obvious that I need a pedicure. But, you know, so I start thinking, self-care, I need to do all these things and plan them out. And really, what what you reminded me of, Deborah, was that, you know, what I know that I need in the morning, you know, myself, I know that if I get up every morning and I spend a half hour to myself every morning, that I feel so much better about my day. I can take care of my son better. The way that I talk to him is uh, way more positive. I'm more confident and less all over the place. But really, I need at least a half an hour to myself each morning to where even if he's up, he, he can't talk to me. He needs to kind of go do his own thing. But I consider that to be self-care. Um, what it, would is, you- it is self-care. And, and the interesting t- thing you're, you're bringing up, Diana, is you have to, each of us has to find what that self-care is. For me, I'm a little bit like you. I need to have a quiet time. For me, it's in the middle of the day because I go from, you know, taking care of my own family to then taking care of my elderly mother a couple of days a week. So I go there at night. So my quiet time is how can I shut the world off and really reboot. So for others, it may be getting pampered. For others, it might be delegating. For others, it might be sleeping late or sleeping in. The the key here is to not see it as selfish, even if it is, you know, getting a nice mani-pedi. We need those (laughs) things. And I I love, there's this one saying that there's nothing in nature that blooms every day. So don't be mad at yourself if you need to take a day off, meaning that Mm. you can't be growing and going all day long. There has to be some rest period. And it's important Uh, that we mm -hmm. teach that for our kids to see, too. Yes, good words. I think it is good, especially, and I think it's true. I think you're right, Deborah, for children as well. Um, It's that old, we overschedule them and and put them on too much of a hectic rush schedule. And they don't have time. You know, David Elkind talks about cloud watching, that our children don't don't have time to lay on the grass and just watch the clouds. Yeah, yeah. And so maybe we need to lay on the grass and watch the clouds. (laughs) It's true. It's true. So... I, I hate to switch topics, but but this is really um, also is critical it is. and is just as important. So, um, Deborah, can you do you have any thoughts about why the rate of suicide is rising uh, in the elderly? 
Well, you know, there's a number of things that go on um, in the frontal lobe of the brain as we age. And we know that a lot of vascular issues um, occur for the elderly in the frontal lobe of the brain, which involves reasoning, judgment, and problem solving. These are also responsible for our daily living skills like grooming, washing, eating, sleeping, those kinds of regulation issues. So when depression hits and it's in a mild form, we generally don't see an elderly person who's thinking about dying by suicide or even having any end-of-life thoughts. But as depression worsens and it moves into a moderate or severe state, we find many adults differently than the younger adults stopping taking their medication, not eating, not sleeping, not grooming. Um, my father, who had um, dialysis three days a week, did, was going late, didn't want to get there on time. And so we see some of these behaviors as, as kind of like a signaling way to express I'm really struggling and I don't want to be here anymore. So a large part of the rise that we see is that there's a tremendous amount of uh, disconnection in life. Many of our seniors, despite the fact that we love them very much, don't get the kinds of social connections they need and the engagement they need. So the, the more technological we've become, the less cloud watching <laughs> we've done and the less connecting in real time to others. So the, the research is pointing to a lot of seniors feeling very socially isolated and disconnected, and that tends to be the surge for why they feel, you know, an end of life or suicidal thinking comes. Sometimes they feel like they're a burden. They don't want to be that. There's a lot of negative thinking that comes, so it's ideal for uh, family members to kind of talk openly about it. There's the myth that if you talk about you know, wanting to die or do you not want to be here anymore is going to cause a person to actually think in a suicidal term is actually a, a myth. It, it actually opens the door to talk about problem solving and maybe making life a little bit more meaningful. So never be afraid to have that conversation if you can. Deborah, how do seniors commit suicide? I mean, is it different than how younger people commit suicide? Uh, yes. Yes, it's, it tends to be more, more passive. Um, um, men tend to have the highest rate, uh, 85 and older, for dying by suicide, and it's usually by not taking their medications, um, not eating anymore, um, certain types of lethal means that um, may not be as planned out, but I don't know how specific you want to get, but there are certain lethal means like hanging and, and using guns that these individuals can use. But for the most part, younger people choose more violent, active uh, ways to die by suicide. Um, for the elderly individual, it tends to be more under the radar, like keep an eye on, on your elders if they're taking their medication or taking too much of it. Are they not eating and purposefully, you know, kind of moving into a starvation? So it does require family members to, to just know what to look for and, to, and, again, to be unafraid to confront and say, what's going on here? Like I did with my dad. I said, Dad, why are you not going to dialysis? You don't go to dialysis. You're going to die. Is there something you really want to talk about here with me? 
and that led to a discussion about him feeling very, very sad where he was in his life at that time. So it can, it can provide a lot of information, but it is a scary thing to do. So I understand that if you need assistance in some way, not to hesitate to call a mental health professional, because this is tricky stuff and scary. Deborah, what kind of interventions are available for seniors? Because I think the, the prejudice I often hear is like, ah, oh, he's too old for therapy, you know. Well, what? In, a, in, in a way, I think that that's, you know, uh, part and parcel of how the general public views psychotherapy, that it's this longstanding, you know, you come in, you never get let out because you're in therapy for hundreds <laughs> of years. But the truth is, is that evidence-based short-term therapies work wonderfully for the elderly population. There are certain types of psychodynamic, insight-oriented, problem-solving therapies that work, behavioral strategies, mindfulness therapies. There are at least a dozen that I could talk about that really tar- are target-specific for what the senior is facing, whether it's a problem or an existential issue. It's a short-term therapy between 6 to 12 weeks, gets them rolling and going and addressing things that can help reduce depressive symptoms. So that is the talk therapy piece. The other piece here is, and I know a lot of uh, older adults don't like to hear this, but medication does a tremendous amount of uh, of good when it comes to depression. And 90% of adults respond exceptionally well to antidepressants and anti-anxiety meds. The key here, though, is to work with somebody who understands the physical, metabolic, and neurobiological aspects of an older person because the dosages for older individuals are much lower than for the general population. So that's an important piece. Um, So we're talking medication and we're talking short-term therapies. And, you know, again, life does not have to be this dark, you know, unhappy, despairing place where you feel alone and frightened. It can be a time of great meaning and enjoyment and adventure. And that's what we want. We want, you know, older people to really have golden years. Deborah, we don't have a lot of time, so I I need to ask you quickly. So if I have someone I'm concerned about, and um, how do I find out where to go? How do I know how to find the mental health practitioner or the physician who will competently treat, you know, my senior? Dr. Griff, that's probably the most important question to be asking. Uh, It's very hard to find gerontologists, as you know. Um, And what I would tell anybody who's listening is to just be part of the evaluation procedure. You go with your loved one to their medical doctor, and you want to cross off a number of different things, including making sure there's a full medical exam, that that there are no medical reasons why... Uh, your your senior is depressed because a lot of issues can look like depression, a vascular stroke, diabetes. Um, and then you move from finding all of those, taking those medical findings, you want to work with a mental health professional that either specializes in depression, and it's a plus if they specialize in geriatrics. But if they, if you cannot find someone to do an evaluation thereafter, a mental status and a whole comprehensive uh, exam for your loved one, 
I always like to tell people to call local universities and find out if they have geriatric departments. Sometimes at the university level, you can get the kind of care and comprehensive eval that maybe locally you may not be able to find, especially if you're you know, in, in a suburb or a rural area. But the key here is a thorough exam because so much could be going on in your loved one who's older. We've been talking to Dr. Deborah Serrati. She's been a great resource for us on depression in later life. Dr. Serrati, do you want to give us your contact information? Yeah, if anybody would like, they can just check me out on my website, which is com, and you can find all my books, my social media, and if you want to reach out and ask a question, I, I read all my email. <laughs> wow, I'm impressed. <laughs> Actually, I mean, I can't email- do it quickly, but I read it all. <laughs> Oh, God. Actually, my email makes me depressed. So, all right, Dr. Sarani, thank you so <laughs> thank you, much uh, for being thank with you us so much, today. Ladies. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Stay with us uh, when we return. We'll um, be back with Julia Fast, and we'll be going to the other end of the uh, age spectrum and talking about depression in children. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Where's your dad? What's he doing? You'd know if he was at Sarah Care Daytime Senior Care and Activities. You'd know he's enjoying a full day of cooking, computers, yoga, golfing, and he's home by dinner. You'd know Sarah Care LPN and RN Nursing Care is with him to ensure he gets the right medications at the right dosages. You'd know. How's your dad? He's just fine. At Sarah Care Daytime Senior Care and Activities. Call 330-451-6108 for one free day of care at Sarah Care. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Listening to Caught Between Generations. To reach our program today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Dr. Merrill at CaughtBetweenGenerations.com. Now, back to the show. 
Welcome back to Quote Between Generations. Anna Albrecht and I are here together, and we're joined by Julia Fast. Uh, and Julia has dealt with depression, bipolar disorder, actually all of her adult life. And I was just saying to Julia before the show started that I, I have such admiration for her because despite her struggles, uh, with a very difficult uh, mental illness. She has been able to get beyond it and has written five books on mood disorders, um, one of which extremely is called Get It Done When You're Depressed, 50 Strategies for Keeping Your Life on Track, which is a wonderful book of strategies and ways to get your life back on track. And she's in the midst of writing a book for children called, and I may mispronounce this, Julia, Hortensia. Is that correct? That's correct. Hortensia. All right. <laughs> Hortensia and the Magical Brain, Poems for Kids with Bipolar, Anxiety, Psychosis, and Depression. So welcome to Quote Between Generations. We're welcome. so happy to have you here. Well, thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to talking. So, Julia, my, my, our first question is, you know, I think sometimes there's a lot of disbelief around depression and children. So, do children actually get depressed? Do they actually suffer from childhood depression? Yes, they do. And here's how I respond to that. If you have a brain, you can get depressed. So, if you have a leg, you can have a broken leg. And if you have a brain, you can get depressed. Depression is brain chemicals. And although we have different types of depression, such as genetic depression, in other words, you're born with it, it runs in families, or circumstantial depression, where you've never been depressed before, you lose a loved one and you get depressed. That's more of the geriatric area of stuff that a lot of people have to go through. But absolutely, children get depressed, and they're usually very vocal about it with their parents. So what does depression look like in children? How would I know it that is, a child is depressed? It is, often, it is often so out in the open. I'll give an example. So for 10 years, I was in a relationship with a fabulous man who has bipolar one, and he told me this story. When he was four years old, he went up to his mom and he said, I want to die. Point blank, said it out loud. And I remember talking to him saying, did you know what that meant? Did you like philosophically think about it. He goes, no, I just had the thought and I said it out loud. I want to die. So quite a few kids will be verbal with it. I don't want to be here. I don't want to exist. I'm unhappy. No one loves me. So those are your actual outward signs. So if you have a child that says, I want to die, I want to kill myself. I'm going to jump out of a window. You take it very seriously, but you don't have to overreact to it. Because it could just be brain chemicals not working, right? It doesn't mean the child is abused. It doesn't mean anything is actually even wrong with the outside of the child's life. It's just that the brain is not working. Then the other kind will be a change in activity. So you'll notice a child, let's say a child who was once social, will go into a corner, sometimes actually turn their head in the corner and look at the wall instead of playing. In that situation, you have to figure out, is it anxiety, is it depression? And another thing I want to really stress, my work that I do is very based off of actual diagnosable, genetic-based, physical illness, mental health. We need to separate that from trauma because trauma can appear as depression and sadness 
and lots of worry, and that could be where abuse is involved. So always you have to be careful if you see a child that's acting depressed and figure out if there's trauma. But in my world, where I work with families and partners and write my books, lots of times the kids are just born that way, and their brain makes them depressed. So yes, kids absolutely can get depressed. Uh, Julie, I was originally going to ask age-wise, you know, how young uh, depression can start, but I think you may have answered that since you started off talking about um, your boyfriend being four years old. Four years old. When he mentioned yeah, four, four years, years old, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, as soon as they can so talk, what kind? Have a depressive thought. Okay. So, what kind of question can I ask a child who's saying those things to me? What do I do? I, I'm not going to jump and run and call the doctor necessarily or a therapist. What can? What questions can I ask my child to sort of find out where they're at with that? I actually think if you do have a child who has a suicidal thought, you do want to go to the doctor and the therapist. But here's how. Right you do away. It. Okay. So, absolutely. Tap to get serious. Okay. Yep. Absolutely. Any suicidal thought in a child must be taken seriously. But what I'm saying is we don't have to say, oh, my gosh, my child is going to die. This is a horrible thing. Here's how I do it. So I was, I helped raise my nephew. He's got wonderful parents, but I'm the auntie and I was around. And I started talking to him when he was four years old, very openly about my bipolar in a very natural way. And I'd say things like, his name's David. I'd say, David, you know, the brain is responsible for a lot of our thoughts. And sometimes the thoughts we have are our own, and it's what we want to think and what we want to do. But sometimes the brain, because it's part of the body, doesn't work in the way it needs to. And some thoughts and some feelings can come up that are actually a part of the brain's chemical process. So if I'm in front of a little child, now remember, I'm not a therapist. I do not work directly with children with mental health disorders. My specialty Mm -hmm. is helping parents and partners get help for young people, for example. So this is what I'd tell them. If a little boy came up to me and said, Mommy, I want to die. First of all, your heart drops and you think, Oh, I have no idea what to do. My child is sick. What's happened? Is someone abusing him? What's happening? So you get that sort of drop. And the next thing you say is you say, I hear what you're saying. Let's talk about this. Sometimes the brain can make us have thoughts and feelings that we don't understand. Can you tell me a little bit more about what you mean by that when you say you want to die? Having thoughts like that are normal. That's one thing that a lot of people don't understand. A lot of people have suicidal thoughts. Thoughts like that are normal. So how about if we just look at this as the brain telling you something is going on and let's get you to somebody to talk to about this. But for now, can you tell me a little bit more about what's going on? So normalize a scary situation, but you take it seriously. Hey, you just so Julia, suicidal. I, that happens. Mm-hmm. I'm following up on, on Deanna's question. I mean, so now we have teenagers, adolescents. I mean, this is not a professional diagnosis, but let's face it, they're disturbed. All right, they are just, you know, they go through adolescence and there's a lot going on hormonally um, and in their own cognitive growth. So, and they can get very withdrawn and they can end up sleeping a lot and they get, you know, disorders in eating. How do you differentiate um, between, you know, without becoming a therapist, you know, between kind of normal adolescent acting out or behaviors, what would make me think this is beyond this and this is serious and I need to, 
you know, get this child to a professional? There are two things I look at, duration and intensity. So you've got a 14-year-old girl. So my, my own mental illness, so I have bipolar disorder and a psychotic disorder and an anxiety disorder and a right brain injury, believe it or not. So I have four things that I deal with. My illness started with psychosis at about age 16, but up until then I was pretty typical. And I remember, so here's a typical 14-year-old. I don't want to. I don't like you. I don't love you. I don't want to go to that place. Leave me alone. And the 14-year-old runs up to her room and slams the door. And she's upset. She might even throw something. She's crying. But that 14-year-old will come down to dinner. Little sheepishly, had her little tantrum. She'll come down to dinner. I don't want to go. That play is stupid. But she'll end up going, have a good time, and that's it. So right there is intensity and duration. You can get really, really upset as a teen. Leave me alone. I hate you. You don't know what you're doing. But the duration of it is going to be short. Now, 14 years old, goes up to her room and says, I hate you. I want to die. Nobody loves me. And she takes some black trash bags and puts them over all of her windows and locks the door. Now, there is such a huge difference between that kind of response and the I hate you, I hate you, and slams the door but comes down to dinner. So that's the first thing you're looking for is the duration and the intensity. If somebody is a typical teen, they're going to go in and out of being upset. I have a 15-year-old nephew. I watch him carefully, and I watch him get mad and angry, but it's so quick. With mental health disorders, it tends to be longer, so you'll find somebody who will be down for days and days and days, and you look for changes. Can they get up to go to school? Can they take care of their hygiene? Are they talking to their friends if they used to have them? So right there, you're looking at a change in behavior that's longer term. Intensity, with the families I work with, we're talking tearing sinks out of the wall, ripping off baseboards, punching holes in the wall, ramming cars into brick walls, screaming, yelling, drug use, self-harm. That kind of behavior always, in my mind, is where you've gone past the typical teenage behavior into the realm of mental health disorder. But what do we do about the copycat suicides we seem to be seeing now? Like the issues that are happening when someone watches a show like 13 Reasons Why on Netflix or the blue whale thing that we're hearing about where people are being sort of encouraged to kill themselves. I believe we now have a third category of problem and that is sort of social media suicide following that we don't understand very well and that parents are not quite understanding. So that does make it more difficult to help a teenager. Julia, maybe for those listeners who are not familiar with that, could you just kind of briefly describe, you know, for instance, Blue Whale? Yes. Right. I'd like to know. So my specialty, you know, I... I am 53 years old. I still remember being a teen with mental health, so I feel really connected to it. But when I was growing up with all of my psychosis and my suicidal stuff, I remember reading Sylvia Plath, and I remember 
doing all of the stuff. I didn't know I had bipolar, but I knew something was wrong. So our access to materials about suicide and about what to do and cutting and all of this kind of stuff that we see in the larger realm of a lot of teenage problems, there just wasn't a lot of access to it. So now what I see is how are we going to help kids who are already down go to places on the web that are going to make them feel better? Because here's the reality of being suicidal when you're a teen. Instead of looking for something to make you feel better, being suicidal, which I've been since I was 19 years old, we go look for something to make us feel worse. That's the nature of the illness. We want people to understand our suicidal ideations. We don't go look for rainbows and puppies. We go look for other people who are suicidal. So apparently, 13 Reasons Why, which was created for adults, but it's a show on Netflix that is about why this young person killed themselves, and then the blue whale thing. The blue whale thing is something that's happening where it's do this, so try to jump off this building, or try to do this and see if you can survive. And you're finding some very suggestionable, I mean, you need to say that, young people who are going through with what they're reading on the internet. That has so changed the way that I do my work and so many people in this profession do their work. How do we help people who are suicidal, who are young, go look for the help in the right way versus getting caught up in this vortex of sort of it's cool to be suicidal that's currently on the web? And that's a problem that I see people having. And the way we do this is we educate kids from a young age If you have a suicidal thought, here's what it means. It doesn't mean you're crazy. It's just a brain that's out of whack, and here's what we do. And I think prevention is the answer to that. We've been talking to Julia Fast about childhood depression and suicide. When we come back, I want to ask Julia some questions about um, and suggestions for handling siblings of children who are depressed or who may be suicidal. We'll be right back. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. At SarahCare, we provide daytime activities and health-related care for seniors who need assistance and support during the day. It is 101 activities at home by dinner. While we pride ourselves on the quality of our care, the Sarah Care Way sees beyond your loved one's needs to understand them as a unique individual. We care for individuals with chronic diseases, memory loss, stroke, Parkinson's disease, or those who may be feeling depressed and isolated. Our program is designed to encourage seniors to remain involved in activities of their choice, customized to meet their interests and abilities. Our outings include lunch at favorite restaurants and trips to the movies, concerts, or shopping at a cost that is less than five hours of in-home care. Your family member can attend one of our centers all day and be cared for by professional nurses and activity assistants. Transportation and financial assistance is available. Call 1-800-472-5544 today to learn how Sarah Care can help or visit us on the web at sarahcare.com. That's S-A-R-A-H care.com. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are 
are listening to Caught Between Generations. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Merrill at CaughtBetweenGenerations.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to Caught Between Generations. I am Dr. Merrill and my co-host, Deanna Albrecht. And we're here with Julia Fast, who has lived with uh, depression and bipolar disorder all of her life. And as I said at the beginning, I really admire her for being able to find the strength to write some very important books that I think have a lot of meaning for people and have really helped them. So thank you, Julia, for your contributions. Um, thank you. Before we broke, we were starting to be talking about siblings because I think part of the parenting issue is dealing with the child who may be depressed and may have bipolar disorder. But then the other issue is how do I explain this? How do I deal with my child's brothers and sisters? What actually happens is when you have a child who is difficult, either from any kind of illness, to be honest. It could be cerebral palsy, it could be bipolar, it could be schizophrenia, depression, anxiety. What happens is that the parental intention goes so much onto that child that the siblings who are stable are considered, hey, you're fine, so you can get your own lunch, and you're not going to get the time you need with us because we have to take care of your brother or sister. So when I work with parents, one of the first things I say is, you must have, for example, a bipolar-free zone. So let's say you've got a 17-year-old living at home with bipolar who needs lots of help, having trouble with pot, in and out of the hospital, you're working hard. You have to make the time for the siblings, if there are siblings, where you're allowed to be with those siblings where you don't talk about the other child or about the bipolar. That's called the bipolar-free zone. It's not going to harm the child who needs help, but it shows the siblings, hey, my parents understand that I'm separate from my brother or sister who is sick. So that's the first thing. The next thing is, is explain that the siblings need to learn just as much about that illness as the parents do because they're going to grow up with that person. Let's say bipolar, for example. You've got to learn how to interact. There is a book called High Tide, Low Tide, The Caring Friends Guide to Bipolar Disorder that actually is a wonderful book for siblings. And then finally, with very young kids, don't think that you can't explain mental illness to very young siblings. If a five-year-old is being attacked by their older brother who has, let's say, high anxiety and is in a mood swing and actually accidentally does something and throws something and hits the child, it is absolutely fine to say, that behavior is not okay, but here's how it happened. Here's how you can deal with it. Here's how we're protecting you from it. And here's what you need to know about it. So don't sweep it under the carpet. You wouldn't if you had a child in a wheelchair. Why would you sweep it under the carpet if the child has a mental health disorder? So I'm for complete openness in talking about it, but also letting the sibling know they are not responsible for the child who is sick, but they are just as important and as loved as the child who is sick. So it's a big problem that does need to be addressed. But if you, if you catch it early, siblings can understand the situation. So what do you do in this situation? I've seen this often too, Julia, where the siblings get very angry and resentful because they can't bring their friends home, for instance, Mm -hmm. because it's embarrassing uh, for them. Um, Or they're embarrassed when they go out to a public place, to a restaurant. I mean, what advice do you have for those situations? 
Well, the first thing is that embarrassment. So embarrassment implies that you're ashamed of the way the other person is working. So having sort of a mindset change, which is my sibling has an illness, and that they're not choosing that illness. So just as I would try not to be embarrassed if I had a child in a wheelchair, I'm going to try not to be embarrassed if my sibling is acting out. Educate your other friends. So let's say you've got a sibling who can't stop talking because he's manic and he's having lots of problems. You simply say to your friends, I love my brother, but sometimes he has an illness called bipolar disorder and he talks too much. I find it troublesome. Don't worry about it, though. He is not going to harm you or anything. It is just an illness like any other, and let's go somewhere else. And that makes it so normalized. It's bipolar. He talks too much when he's bipolar. He just got out of the hospital. He's a great kid, but sometimes he talks too much. So the more we talk about it in the exact same way we would talk about a physical illness, and that concept of embarrassment changes. So you're still upset by it. And you're still mad that he takes all your atten- all the attention of the parents, but at least you understand that it's actually an illness and you do not have to be ashamed. So I'd start with the shame, stigma, embarrassment. Julia, we don't have much time, and I know you're a very, very strong advocate uh, for talking about brain health. Can you share that with us? I had the idea when my... When my nephew was born, everything changed. I never wanted kids myself. So I, here I am with this little child, and I'm like, how am I going to help raise this beautiful child to respect my bipolar disorder, to know that there will be times where he will see me anxious or manic or psychotic or depressed? So like I said, starting at age four, I just started talking to him about it. And I even have it on film where I'd talk to him, and I'd say, you know, David... He used to call me Auntie Wee. Sometimes Auntie Wee has an illness called bipolar and she'll be depressed. And you'll be playing with your Thomas the Trains and you might see that Auntie Wee is crying. And what you need to know is that it's absolutely fine that she's crying. She's just depressed. You haven't done anything. You're not responsible for her. But she's just going to sit and watch you play instead of interacting with you. Then I'd say to him, here's what anxiety is. It looks like this. If I'm having a breathing problem, if I'm irritated, here's what you say to me. He's 15, and just yesterday, 15 years old, so it's been, what, 11 years, I said to him, David, I've been in a downswing, as you know, for a couple of weeks. I'm so sorry if I've been irritated. I'm trying not to take it out. And he goes, I know, I know the irritation is bipolar disorder. It's no problem. So it does work. So start talking early about brain health. And he knows, because there's bipolar in his family, that there is a chance for that he has bipolar disorder. We're super open about it. So we let him know he can never take antidepressants alone because they can cause mania. He cannot take steroids. He has to really watch high THC pot. He cannot take ADHD meds, and he has to watch his sleep. We've been talking to him about it since he was four years old. So if the bipolar shows up, we'll know what it is, and we'll be ready. If it doesn't, that's great, but he's educated. So I didn't know if it would work. Started at age four. Around age nine, I could tell he understood me. By age 11, 12, he was one of my best companions for it. We've been talking to Julia Fast about childhood depression and also bipolar disorder. Julia, we only have a minute. Tell us your contact information. The best way to reach me is through Facebook at Julia Fast. But also you can go to my website, juliefast.com and bipolarhappens.com. And I highly recommend BP Hope. And that stands for bipolar, BP Hope. BP Magazine for Bipolar has a great kids section called BP Kids. 
And you can read all about depression in kids or bipolar in kids, anxiety in kids, and I highly recommend it. Best place to reach me is through Facebook. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Caught Between Generations, and as always, you need to do just one thing for yourself because you're very, very important to everyone around you. So take good care. Thank you for tuning in to Cut Between Generations with Dr. Mel Griff. Our program is live every Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We hope to see you here next week.